Well, um, good afternoon. I want to welcome all of you here um, to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm delighted that um, uh, there's such a nice quorum um, to greet Randy, who has been such a central um, feature of cancer research here at Dartmouth long before I came. He's very old, and uh, <laughs> so I don't know when all this started, but uh, I know it's been going on seemingly forever. Um, I know this will break your hearts, but there's no CME credit today because we don't anticipate Randy will say anything of consequence. <laughs> it could happen. But we won't know in time to actually arrange for CME, which no longer just happens by signing your name to things. You have to have a computer code and all sorts of gizmos uh, just to collect credit for doing what you should be doing. But um, in all seriousness, it really is a pleasure to invite Randy and to have him share with you uh, a remarkable um, set of stories. Um, Many of you don't know, but Randy's the founder of two different companies, and who knows, one of them might be successful eventually. <laughs> and if that's true, next to Randy, I'll be the second happiest guy. And um, so it really is a, a pleasure. Um, Randy has been a substantive scientist on the American scene uh, for many, many years. Uh, I, I noticed on his CV, um, which is very short, I might add, uh, but substantive, I noticed on his CV that he got an NIH Merit Award in 2004. Now, I was still in training in those days, but it gives you some idea of how far back um, the excellence that you're going to hear about today goes. And of course, Randy's first uh, well-known, highly impactful discovery was um, the identification of uh, the CD40 ligand. And uh, that led ultimately to expansive studies in labs around the world um, studying um, the sort of interface between B cells and T cells and the development of humoral immunity and uh, really very substantive work that I know Immurex is hoping will be of some substance and importance someday, but uh, it really has impacted on people's thinking about the development of the immune system and autoimmunity and how we think about defending ourselves against cancer and really has been a, a substantive, substantive uh, uh, finding. And then uh, I'm not going to go through all the other themes that have emerged from Randy's labs. And well, it wouldn't have been that hard, but <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to leave a little time for Randy to share with you the story about Vista. Um, you know, this was first reported in 2011, but it was discovered like in 2000. No, I just we discovered. I know you discovered it, but they kept it silent until they could figure out what or what it was worth, one of those two, and you're, you're going to hear about that part of it today. And um, as you know, uh, I don't think there's any more exciting area of cancer research right now than uh, immuno-oncology. I mean, People knew, and I lived with this for decades, that people who were immunosuppressed for any reason had uh, enhanced incidence of cancer and especially of lymphomas. And uh, we knew the immune system somehow or other was watching out and defending against cancer. But it's only in the last 10 years, even five, that we have the actual molecules and have some idea of why it is that tumors are able to um, escape immune surveillance and to uh, lead to this terrible disease that um, 
is so prevalent in the world we live in. So uh, Randy's discovery of a system, both the uh, um, Vista ligand and now the receptor and working um, uh, commercially to develop uh, antibodies to interrupt that process and disrupt the tumor-mediated inhibition of the immune system is really uh, just a remarkable story, and I doubt many people do this, but take a chance, time to read the papers in which this has evolved. There are only a couple, and uh, it really is a, a remarkable story. So, Randy, without um, further uh, conversation, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Mark. <clears throat> um, okay, so um, today we're going to talk about getting your science uh, into into people. Um, what my lab does um, is um, we study molecules that, that control immunity, and I think this accurately represents what, what most of us feel about the immune system. Um, I don't think I've ever told this the whole this whole story in public before. Of course, these nightmares I've conveyed to my therapist on many occasions, um, and so you'll hear about the trials and tribulations of trying to move something, a scientific observation, uh, into people. So, um, if you want to step way back, um, not back to about 1984 um, when I first got here, um, there, there's a little bit of science in this. Sorry, um, we were interested in molecules that controlled humoral immunity, um, how antigens induce antibody responses, and the molecules that control that. Well, about 1984, this is what we knew. We knew that there were T cells, we knew that there were B cells, and we knew that those T cells triggered those B cells to do something, to grow, to activate, and to produce antibody. Um, we identified a molecule, and that was expressed on the surface of T cells. Um, goes by a couple of names, CD154 or CD40 ligand. It interacts with the molecule CD40 on B cells and triggers B cells to um, uh, differentiate and make antibody. And so, um, just so I don't confuse you, CD40L is identical to CD154, just a different name for it. And so, um, we began investigating this molecule, and lo and behold, it became a lot more important than we ever envisioned. Um, it became a molecule that actually was an on-off switch for the immune system. It controlled antibody production, it controlled the activation of dendritic cells, the development of cell-mediated immunity. And so, here we had a brand new molecule, um, that seemed to be extremely valuable in the control of antibody-mediated immunity and cell-mediated immunity. And so we produced an antibody to it, and producing that antibody to it, um, first of all, identified the molecule. Um, and it became actually, getting into the, the business and intellectual property aspects of it, it became the inventive step. That is, producing an antibody and discovering that molecule became the inventive step. And the date of the, producing that antibody will actually become very important and come back to haunt me, us, later in the, in the discussion. <coughs> the date of discovery um, is actually the date when the fusion was done in the laboratory. All right? And so with this antibody, um, we began to look at a bunch of different things. We asked whether or not this antibody in a mouse and um, actually, another note, this antibody was made to mouse uh, CD40 ligand. Um, this antibody in a mouse, if we immunized the mouse, the mouse would make an immune response. And then if we treated the mouse with anti-CD40 ligand, we could completely block the generation of that immune response. And so we had an agent that could intervene in the development of humoral immunity. And so we thought that, well, if we can deal with normal immune responses and wipe them out, we can maybe deal with autoimmune disease responses. And so we and many other labs march through using this antibody, and it works in everything. It works in every model uh, in, in the mouse. And when it moved into the clinic, um, it worked in a number of human clinical trials as well, which we'll get to in a little bit. And so with this in hand, um, we envisioned the production of a human therapeutic, um, an antibody to human CD40 ligand that could block CD40 ligand on T cells and interrupt the interaction 
between a T cell and a B cell, a T cell and a dendritic cell, et cetera, et cetera. And so it all began, the commercialization aspect of this all began with a sort of an unsolicited call from IDEC Pharmaceuticals. Um, IDEC Pharmaceuticals at the time, we're going back to the, uh, the mid-90s, was a small company. Um, they did produce a pretty important drug that you all know about called rituximab. Um, and um, they were interested in developing an anti-human CD154. And in fact, a postdoc in my lab, Terry Foy, had produced an anti-human CD154. Um, and so um, the discussion continued. And the, um, that Dartmouth licensed the rights to our anti-CD154 to IDEC Pharmaceuticals. Now, um, the antibody that we made, of course, was a mouse anti-human CD154. And so to move that into the clinic um, is a bunch of change. Um, you have to go through all sorts of antibody re-engineering. You had to humanize the antibody. That's a few hundred thousand dollars. You have to make cell lines and then make it suitable for um, GMP production and for, do I really need this? And for um, uh, human clinical trials. You're talking somewhere between five and eight million dollars to move from a point where we were to getting into a phase one trial in humans. And so as sort of, obviously, as an academic investigator, there are no resources to do this. There are no NIH grants uh, to individual investigators that will cover the cost of translational development of an antibody through humanization um, and um, entry into a phase one trial. But during that time as well, um, our laboratory worked on um, uses of anti-CD40 ligand to treat disease. A long list of patents that were issued, um, and some of these were patents issued to composition of matter, meaning the actual molecule. And then some of these patents were use patents, as you can see, methods of treating graft-versus-host disease, uh, tolerance induction, um, T-cell-mediated dis disorders, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were compiling um, both ownership of the molecule and ownership of uses of that molecule. Um, this spanned a long period of time, I think we're showing at least eight years, and actually a lot of money in legal costs, right? And so again, as an academic investigator, um, you're looking at a price tag of probably uh, a few million dollars for filing and global, um, global um, patent filing for um, all of these patents. Um, in addition, unless you globally file, the interest in the pharmaceutical company is minimal. Um, and the other important fact is that if you want to sell something, you need to own it. And so you need to be diligent in both um, composition of matter and, um, and in um, uses. Um, however, we were not alone. Um, and um, there was another investigator um, at Columbia, Seth Letterman was at Columbia, and Columbia licensed the rights to their anti-CD40 ligand to Biogen. Um, um, and uh, we're moving forward with development. Now, the distinction between Seth and me was we did most of our work in the mice, in mice, and most of our early patent filings were surrounded in um, uh, observations in mice. Seth made an antibody originally to the human CD40 ligand form, all right? Um, and um, we then engaged in extremely lengthy patent battles globally. Um, here in the United States, in the European Patent Office, and in fact, what it ultimately came down to initially was a discovery phase. And the discovery phase, which actually doesn't really exist any longer, is when you go back into your lab notebooks and figure out exactly when you made the discovery versus the other person making the discovery. And so in 1999-2000, um, we, we each went back into our lab notebooks 
And as it turned out, we, made our, we did a fusion four days prior to Seth Letterman at Columbia. And so we beat them by four days. It, it, about eight years later. And so we were very, very happy. Um, this was all good news. Um, however, just so you know, discovery doesn't matter anymore. The date of the discovery doesn't matter. It is now date of filing. So the rules have changed. But way back when, it was date of discovery. And that, with a monoclonal antibody, was the date of the, of the uh, successful fusion. So, of course, Columbia continued to sue um, us, um, and they, um, they uh, uh, protested about the discovery um, uh, issuance, and they also said that our filings of um, identifying mouse CD40 ligand did not teach how to discover human CD40 ligand. Um, and so um, what? after a lengthy court battle in the district court in, in California, uh, almost to the highest level of the patent system, <clears throat> um, what, was, what was decided was that, indeed, we disclosed uh, the mouse CD40 ligand. We disclosed a monoclonal antibody to the mouse CD40 ligand. However, we did not sufficiently disclose structural elements of the human form. And in fact, um, this was such a, an important finding. I am actually internationally renowned as the losing party um, in the uh, composition of matter claims in Noel v. Letterman. And actually, it has become an, an extremely important precedence in, in patent jurisprudence that um, uh, one has to pay attention to species and that one cannot predictably cross species with claims to one and the other. And as a consequence, surprisingly, and this doesn't happen much anymore, Columbia was granted rights to all CD40 ligand antibodies. Most of the time now, you get granted rights to individual antibodies, but they were granted rights to um, all antibodies. All right, so there go our composition of matter claims. So we no longer own anti-CD40 ligand. Another interesting um, lesson to learn is as you work with your trusted colleagues, and share reagents and, and um, ideas, as we did with um, our close group at the University of Massachusetts. Um, if they are co-assigned to your patent, um, so for any given patent, if you are assigned as an inventor and another school is assigned as an inventor, you can individually license to any company that you want. Now, of course, if we license to IDEC and our colleagues at the University of Massachusetts license to Biogen, then you kind of lose value because you both own the same thing. And so we've lost freedom, freedom to operate. Um, and then the University of Massachusetts was making over, um, overtones of licensing to Biogen. Um, we uh, met with the University of Massachusetts president. We tried to express the importance of collegial interactions and science as being the driving force in supporting um, a, 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 an agreed licensing to IDEC. And as it turns out, they did license to Biogen, um, basically eradicating the value of our um, many of our use patents. Uh, the same thing happened with another collaborator. And so um, as you have co-assignments to different institutions, <clears throat> there should be some verbiage, I hope these days, in the agreements that one party controls uh, the licensing terms uh, for the uh, issued claims. And so um, time was moving on. And so in June in 1999, Biogen uh, moved into four or five phase two trials with anti-CD40 ligand. It's unheard of to move into that many phase two trials at once. Um, we were actually, I got to hand it to IDEC. 
um, owning nothing any longer, they continued to move ahead. Um, and so as did we with them. And so Biogen moved into lupus, transplant, inflammatory bowel disease, and ITP. And so where were we? We were in great shape. We lost freedom to operate. We lost exclusivity on many of our use patents. We were behind our drug development. And now Biogen launches, it, launches into multiple phase two trials. However, um, Biogen launches into trials. Antova was the name of the anti-CD40 ligand drug. There were serious unanticipated adverse events associated with anti-CD40 ligand therapy, serious adverse events. And so they halted all trials. These were thromboembolic events that we now sort of understand. Um, and um, it was seen with the Biogen antibody, but it was not seen with the IDEC antibody. Great. All right? So um, IDEC had initiated a clinical trial, phase one trial in lupus, a phase two trial in lupus, a successful phase two trial in ITP. Um, they did voluntarily suspend their trials for a little while while the air cleared and we got grips onto what the thromboembolic events were about. And again, the FDA um, expressed that there were no safety concerns with IDEC 131 and we were moving ahead. Geez, thank goodness. We actually, with Lloyd Casper here in the MS clinic, we completed a really successful um, phase one trial in remitting relapsing MS, and the, the data looked great. From this, we received a $7 million phase, NIH phase two trial to move forward in remitting relapsing MS. And IDA guaranteed provision of the antibody. We were well on our way, and um, we were going to move forward with developing this drug that we had been um, working on for so many years. But then things got kind of quiet. <clears throat> and of course, Ivic and Biogen had to start talking to one another because I, Biogen owned everything as far as legal rights. And Ivic had a drug that looked like it was working. And so things got quiet. And then one morning, I turn on my computer, and Biogen and Ivic merge. I said, Fantastic. No more battles. All the legal issues are done. One company owns all the patents and, and, and a successful antibody. Well, <clears throat> um, so once they merged and, and Biogen leadership took over, they killed the entire program. Um, and so um, even though there was an agreement to provide IDEC 131 to our NIH uh, clinical trial, um, they refused. Um, we'll get back to the story at the end, but Biogen did out-license rights to making these antibodies to a company called UCB that labored forever. They're now in clinical trial with, um, with a suspicious antibody, but we'll get back to it. Um, but this is not the end of the story, and we'll get back to it in a bit. So what's this example? Um, this experience um, is an experience of direct licensing to, to, to uh, the biotech industry or the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you depend upon the biotech to develop the drug. You have a peripheral involvement with development. But you really don't have any control over any of the decisions. Um, and so is there another way of doing it? This is probably the most um, common way of direct licensing to industry for drug development. The alternative plan is to create a startup. And actually, after this experience, there was no way we were going to license another one of our assets to a company and not have some kind of control. And so um, you create a startup. You license your IP into that startup from Dartmouth. You fund the asset to develop value of in, in the science and the intellectual property. That takes money. Right? And the question is, where does that money come from? And then you license to pharma when the acid is more matured. And so if you have the ability to hold on to your discoveries for a while and be able to mature those, those discoveries, when you want to sell it, it has a lot more value. And the reality is, unless, you, unless you're anticipating becoming a phase one type of company, unless you're thinking about 
making a protein or an antibody, um, developing, it, developing it and moving it into humans, we're much better suited to do research and development of identifying uh, an asset, um, maturing that asset a bit, doing proof of concept studies to show that it has value, and then licensing it to a company that really knows how to drive um, antibody development and, and clinical trial. So where did immunet? Questions? Thoughts? Okay. Actually, interrupt me if you, if you so choose. So the company that we started um, was Immunext, and then actually the success of Immunext is in part due to the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network. Greg Fairbrothers, I must say, um, put myself and our CEO together. And at the beginning, there was just a bit of angel investment. Um, the assets that we have, and I won't go into many of them, Vista, we will go into just a little bit. Um, there's Vista, there's anti-CD40 ligand again, um, and there's a metabolomics target and CD40. Um, angel investment initially was a couple of hundred thousand bucks. Um, but over the years, um, we've been able to raise substantial amounts of money from SBARs and STTRs. There is no venture investment uh, in Immunext, and so the money to drive asset development comes from SBARs and STTRs, and money for milestone payments that come in from, from um, one of the licensed drugs that um, we've developed. Um, it's a, it, it is a great model. Um, we make decisions in milliseconds. Um, there is no venture group to talk to. There's no board. Um, it's just a couple of us, and we can sit down and make decisions about the direction of, of asset development very, very quickly. So the people, it's me, it's Jay, and Jay is spectacular. He's from Amgen after 10 years, and Dave Delucia is our CEO that really guides the business development. We are, thanks to Mark, actually, uh, in part, we are located in uh, the Cancer Center, right around the corner from um, our lab. Um, it's a great model. Um, it's unfortunate we don't attract more private sector entities um, into our academic space. They could pay the rent, um, and um, I think they are a, a valuable uh, component in the educational process, and it goes in both ways, that Immunext um, uh, gains a lot of value from being in the Cancer Center, and um, I think uh, Immunex as a group of superb scientists provide valuable resources for the academic labs as well. And so these are assets. Um, the CD40 antagonist that I'll tell you a little bit about um, is his Orient trial. It entered phase one trials in January in uh, solid cancer. The CD40 antagonist is still here after, since 1992. We're going to get this into the clinic um, and then, and then uh, um, a few others. And so let me tell you about uh, checkpoint regulators just briefly. Um, they are remarkable, and, and Mark alluded to them. And so there's a bunch of molecules that um, suppress the immune system. And as simple as it sounds, if you block the suppressors, you can generate great immune responses to tumors. And the examples are these. And so CTLA-4 is a negative regulator of T cells. Um, Ipilimumab developed by Jim Allison and um, Metarex. Um, another Dartmouth-founded company um, created an antibody, uh, Yervoy Ipilimumab. It blocks CTLA-4 and was a pr an approved drug for late-stage melanoma, what, in 2011. Um, then, uh, a series of anti-PD-1, PD-1 is another negative regulator of the immune system, developed by, uh, again, um, made by Metarex after they got sold to Bristol-Myers. But Keytruda, anti-PD-1, and Optivo, made by Merck, um, were approved for melanoma um, and for advanced uh, lung cancer. Uh, overall response rates in late-stage melanoma of 30, 40, 50 percent, absolutely remarkable. Um, and nivolumab in, um, in advanced melanoma and lung cancer in, in the 20s and 30s and 40s of percentages. So this all happened, as you can see, a couple of years ago. And over the last few years, the intensity um, of interest in negative checkpoint regulators in oncology has gone through the roof. 
Um, um, for those that um, follow um, uh, Jimmy Carter news, Jimmy Carter was diagnosed with late stage melanoma metastases to his brain and his liver. Um, and he was given Keytruda in, in August. And in December, he was diagnosed as tumor free. Um, and so you can't get a better advertisement than that of curing uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, and so the news on these went through the roof. And um, actually, what you really have to appreciate is that the, the pipeline in immuno-oncology in the pharmaceutical industry two years ago was empty. There was no, there was no immuno-oncology. For 30 years, immuno-oncology didn't work. It didn't exist. And in the last two to three years, the pharmaceutical industry has been rushing to fill those pipelines with new drugs. If you look on NIHclinicaltrials.gov, there are 220 trials that are using either anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 uh, in some kind of therapeutic mode. So it's, go, it's, it's the dot-com bubble for immuno-oncology. So Vista, fortunately, is a negative checkpoint regulator. We didn't, we weren't looking for it. A very smart graduate, two very smart graduate students in my lab um, found that this new molecule had homology to PD-1, and that perked up our interest. Um, after, um, and after pursuing it um, extensively, we, we were able to identify that it did um, appear to be a negative regulator of immunity. Um, let's see. And so these studies were done at Dartmouth. And at King's College, I spent a, a few years at King's College at the same time. Um, and they were developed, all of the basic science around uh, VISTA was supported by an R1 from NIH here and from the Wellcome Trust grant uh, in, at King's College. And so the discovery of VISTA and the patents were assigned to both Dartmouth and to King's College. Um, we showed that uh, Vista can, an anti-Vista can enhance immunity in mouse models. And then Immunext licensed intellectual property from Dartmouth, King's College, and the Mayo Clinic. There was IP sitting at the Mayo Clinic from someone else that was working on Vista. And so probably the most valuable, critical component to the success of Vista, and there's a few, is capturing all of the existing intellectual property very early. And so our patent portfolio on Vista is tight and it's complete. If we had left any of this out, particularly the Mayo Clinic, other companies could have developed Vista and moved ahead. And so Index then licenses it from Dartmouth, King's, and Mayo, and then in intended and did outlicense the um, rights to Vista to the pharmaceutical industry. And in, indeed, in September 12, uh, 2012, licensed this package for oncology to Johnson & Johnson. And so between that licensing, um, uh, Immunex um, received support for FTEs. And I have to say that most of the identification of lead, the biological activity of the lead, and development of lead was all done upstairs. Um, these guys at Immunex, the scientists and Immunex, decided which would be the lead of all the antibodies that were made and did a spectacular job. And so in addition to getting support for the FTEs with 60 62% indirect costs coming to, um, uh, to uh, Immunext and some to Dartmouth. Um, it supports our develop Immunext's development. And in addition, there are milestone payments associated with drug development that also go to support FTEs and the other assets in the company. And so AntiVista entered clinical trials in January 2016. We're probably up to treating our eighth or ninth patient by now, which is um, really uh, great. So why was this successful? I'd love to take full credit for it, but timing is Im impeccably important. If we tried to license this in 2010, 
nobody would have been interested. It clearly was the momentum and enthusiasm driven by the success of anti-CTLA-4 ipilimumab and anti-PD-1 in, in, the, in the clinical arena. So timing is important. Um, to create a new field on your own is tough. Everybody was looking for negative checkpoint regulators. The other important thing, as I was alluded to, a really tight uh, patent portfolio. It doesn't matter what your science is if you don't own it. Um, as painful as that is, um, you've got to be diligent about um, owning your discoveries. And these days, it's earliest filing date. It doesn't matter when, we, when you discovered it. You have to file early and not frivolously, but early. And also, the patents have to be written well. I think our experience with CD40 ligand, there are some issues with patent writing way back when that really didn't give us the wealth of um, um, assertion to the human form of CD40 ligand. We could have had it in the patent more robustly. Um, good science, an attractive target, and actually being a member of a family of molecules that have value, of course, is extremely important. Um, same thing. Um, and actually, as I mentioned, absolutely empty pipeline um, in, in the biotech and, and pharma industries for immuno-oncology drugs. So putting all of these things together, yeah, we were pretty lucky um, in being able to move this forward. Um, but I can't stress enough the importance of owning what you do. Um, and being vigilant about now filing in a timely way so that you own things. Nobody's going to buy anything from you that you don't own or that you have to share with someone. And so um, the pipeline of assets that we have, um, you can see that the Vista antagonist has moved all the way into the clinic. We have re-engineered anti-CD40 ligand now after um, how many years? Since uh, 1992. Um, and we've made it a safe antibody. Um, and I'll show you a little bit of that. All of this uh, asset development and support is driven by SPAR, STTR. Um, uh, the phase one trials are a few hundred thousand dollars. The phase two trials are two million dollars. It's a lot of money. There are typically, in each of those, there are subcontracts. So the, um, the, the grant goes to Immunex with subcontracts to doing work to Dartmouth. Um, and so it's a win-win. The um, funding level is much higher than for R01s. And so um, it is a very uh, attractive way of bringing money into the institution, supporting basic work in some cases um, in Dartmouth laboratories and moving assets forward. And so SPLs, STTRs, as well as the milestone payments that are coming in from Johnson & Johnson, um, to support the Vista antagonists, um, support development of these other assets. And so, yes, the CD40 agonist, the antagonist. So this is the old one. And so what we did was we, um, all of the nasty part of this molecule was in the FC region. And so um, what we did is we modified the FC region. I won't go into it. We've moved it through um, non-human primate studies and just a perspective to take this antibody, to engineer it, and to move it through non-human primate studies to show it's safe is probably in the order of two to three million dollars. And that, and that two to three million dollars came from SBARs and STTRs. And, and so you can really move things forward without any venture support. It, and not having venture support is another great asset of being able to make decisions completely independently of anybody else. You make really bad decisions all on your own. <laughs> and so actually in 2002, Jennifer Cousins, who's a writer at Science, um, wrote a story actually about the CD40 ligand nightmare um, in 2005. And that was after uh, about six years of, of obsessing with this molecule. Um, I plan to contact her again. And she may um, change the title of uh, the article uh, to an alternative uh, title. So with that, I think I'll stop. Um, and answer any questions. Yeah. Randy, I think you might be worth spending a minute on telling people what an S 
DIR and STTR is, since I think not everybody so there is a, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there's an assigned percentage of the NIH budget that has to go to these small company uh, sponsored grants um, every year. And so um, for any small company, and I don't know the number, less than 300 employees, maybe something like that, you can write a grant for product development. And um, they come in a bunch of flavors. There's a phase one that's a few hundred thousand dollars. And so this is all about product development. This is, I have, an I have an antibody or I have a target that I want to make an antibody to. That's a phase one and they'll give you a few hundred thousand dollars. Then you've made the antibody. So phase two is, now I have the antibody, I want to humanize it, I want to engineer it, and I want to run it through monkeys to see if it does anything bad to monkeys. That can be $2 million, okay? Even after, actually, even after phase two, there's a phase two B, where then you can take this successful humanized antibody that went through monkeys and begin what's called CMC development, begin GMP production, and begin to making it suitable for moving into humans. And so different phases, they, you have to have a company, okay, and those, those grants can have subcontracts to academic laboratories, which very, very many times we do. They are funded at the, in the 20s percentile, something like that, um, and they're great sources of revenue for product development. But you've got to get your head out of writing an R01. It's challenging. It's not about science. It's about product development. And so if you've just written an R01 and then write an SBIR, it's really bad. You've got to sort of change your mind. It's all about product development and commercialization. Yeah. You know, uh, well, before we go to Carrington, I just want to ask your opinion about uh, some aspect of that because um, not everyone's had exactly the same experience. I think SBIRs really have all the value you added, and you didn't emphasize this, but it also slows down the dilution of your assets because you don't have venture people who are owning part of this. Yes. On the other hand, uh, not every story evolves as cleanly as this, and um, venture capital, when it comes into your life, um, brings a lot of talent and a network and opportunity that might not otherwise be available if you don't happen to have the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network resources or the TTO resources or someone like a CEO that really is a great partner and yes. get the job done. So uh, venture does have some advantages. I mean, you bring up the balance, right? Yeah. Of, of, of bringing in money, you lose control. But bringing in money, you bring in talent as well. I mean, that's my. I point. mean, yes, clearly. Carrie, Terry? Yes, Randy, looking back on, and this is incredible, this career you've had. And, and, and honestly, one of the incredible things is that you stayed here. Give me a few more months. There was Stanford and bigger places that had much better resources for you, I'm sure. So looking back on it, why did you stay? And uh, were you ever tempted to go to a place that had better and bigger resources? So the first 25 years of winter are fine. <laughs> so actually, um, actually, the, I mean, the, um, the Dartmouth community of scientists is an extremely collegial group. I mean, um, there's been enormous entrepreneurial successes here. Mike, Fang, no one's more successful than Mike Fang. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he's responsible for making many of the antibodies that are out there in the clinic now. Um, I think um, the the question is whether or not you can do competitive, high-quality science here. And that is true up till now. Whether it's true as we move forward is a big question. Um, but no, I think if, as long as you can do competitive science um, and pursue your, your, your goals, yeah, that's, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great place to be. Again, microbiology and immunology and the cancer center and, um, has been a spectacular place for doing science. Um. Other thoughts? Well, we, d we don't want to keep you if there aren't other questions, but I, I want to call attention to the next uh, conclave here that starts at 1 o'clock, right? Or uh, in, in Auditorium G above. It's called the uh, IP Boot Camp. You know, uh, Randy mentioned to you the importance of the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network and connecting with Greg 
Fair Brothers, but what he um, probably doesn't know or didn't say that Dartmouth was not all that, and I wish Greg was here today, I don't see him, but uh, Dartmouth College and the medical school were never that happy with the idea of a Dartmouth entrepreneurial network, and Greg's first office was the office that Matt Haverda occupies in my lab, which had been my office, which I gave to Greg because I thought it was important, maybe 10 years ago now, um, to have an entrepreneurial opportunity for people um, in the cancer center. And uh, Greg, for, you know, be, fortunately, because of his own abilities, outgrew that office and outgrew the cancer center and found other resources here at Dartmouth and other activities. And uh, I'm pleased to say never forgot his roots because he's always been a tremendous service to the Cancer Center, and I used to joke with him, none of you know this, um, but if you look on the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network, Dr. Israel is the first and only fellow of the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network, and it was simply because I didn't charge him rent for the office. Uh, the skill set, and I think, Randy, you might want to speak to this, the skill set to do product development and the skill set to actually create assets is not taught in graduate school and it is not something that automatically you pick up uh, unless you yourself make the effort to do it. And uh, we in the Cancer Center want to enhance that opportunity for you with activities like this IP boot camp. We think there is a skill set and a knowledge base that we want to share with you um, for several reasons. I think Randy alluded to some of these, but let me add one. NIH funding has been flat for a decade. If you add into that inflation, which is higher in high technology, which is you and me, as compared to uh, sort of our home budgets, um, we've probably lost close to a third of our buying power um, for doing science that we had about a decade ago. It, it, it's unbelievable the anti-intellectualism and erosion of support for science in America. And I am old enough to remember when it, saying that you did translational science, it was like a dirty word. You weren't a serious scientist. People didn't pay attention to you. Um, now, uh, every grant expects you in several different locations to speak to the short-term value, uh, and I would add obvious value, of what you want to do um, supposedly to uh, advance, not science, but to advance the lives of people who pay for it. And I don't know that that's a bad thing, but it is a reality. Okay, Entrepreneurial funding of science is going to be a big part of your portfolio as your careers develop. And so um, things like this IP boot camp and a number of other activities that Linda Kennedy and a great committee of scientists here that she's put together are really going to offer, I think, the chance to mature and to acquire this uh, knowledge base. So I hope many of you will want to join us at 1 o'clock Auditorium G um, and uh, begin to move down this pathway uh, as you think about the next decade or two of your scientific careers. I will add on to that for a second. So, um, you know, over the last um, six or seven years, um, as we try to sell the assets that we're developing, um, as we talk to the pharmaceutical industry, what's very, very clear, what's actually quite striking, is that research and development within the pharmaceutical industry is all but gone. And if you look at this, look at sites at Johnson & Johnson or at Pfizer, what they've done, they've done two things. They've bought small biotech or set up alliances with small biotech. Pfizer probably has 30 or 40 companies, small companies that they leave alone but sponsor. And in addition, in our discussions with the pharmaceutical industry, um, if you go back five years, 
really there are no discussions with the pharmaceutical industry unless you have a phase one asset, meaning in the antibody world, you have an antibody that's fully humanized, that's been through monkeys, and that is either has entered phase one trials or is about to. As academic investigators, we can't accomplish that for the most part. So um, as far as phase one assets, we were out of the story with regard to support by the pharmaceutical industry. That has dramatically changed. We are now approached for um, looking into research programs that we have running to be evaluated by large pharma. And so Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer are interested in new novel targets in very basic research and filling up their pipeline with new targets. And so I think there's enormous opportunity um, with regard to what Mark said of bringing in private sector money for the types of research projects that we have ongoing now. We, we need to do a better job at um, proactively marketing ourselves. You're not going to get five years and two million dollars and go do what you want to do. That's NIH. Um, but but we, what you will get is you'll get a sizable amount of money for a year or two with, with uh, you know, progress reports, et cetera. And so I think there's real opportunity now for um, filling the financial portfolio with private sector support. And I would just add that, um, as Randy said, this sort of funding uh, sort of dried up for a while, but um, I can remember when it was, when I was more active and it was a part of many portfolios when I was at UCSF for most of my career. And um, you not only got support, but you also got access to unique reagents and expertise that existed within pharma because you had a direct connection to the scientific enterprise in those uh, companies. And that was an amazing <coughs> resource. Scott? Yeah, Randy, so um, just to be clear, the asset is not the target, but rather the, the, the <coughs> intervention, right? So in your case, it's an antibody. No, it's an IP. So whatever your intellectual property defines, and so um, for Vista, it was both the target and antibodies to it. We own both. We own both. And so even if you discover a new molecule, you can claim antibodies to them. It's not, that's, making the antibody isn't an inventive step for the most case. Yeah. Um, and so a new molecule, some idea of function, uh, you file. Um, and then, um, but the problem is you've got to be prepared to deal with all of the fees associated with filing and development if you don't license to a company. All right, um, and so you've got to be able to develop quickly enough to license it to a company for them to take over all of the legal fees um, associated with patent prosecution. Well, it, it's a little right? I mean, we have the TTO here. Uh, yeah. uh, if you develop it at Dartmouth, uh, depending on how you developed it, most of the things we developed, Dartmouth would own, yes. and they would get first crack patenting and they would pay for it. Um, uh, uh, yes, but what you, I mean, even the TTO wants to um, find a partner to support the, the legal prosecution, yes? Because of what you described, how, you know, every country in which you file costs money to translate, to costs money to go through their process, and that takes a lot of resources. And so there is some point where it's really important to have someone to support that. Yep. You know, for those of you who have never processed a patent and so forth, it starts upwards of fifteen to fifty thousand dollars for a patent. It's not trivial. I'm curious, you know, given your experience, is it possible to license only to the company that you're interacting with and not allow that license to be bought by another company? Oh, yeah, it can be exclusive or non-exclusive. So that might have, if you've known about that, it might have... So, but, but actually, I, I don't know if, Neil, you probably know, but having assignments to two institutions... Yeah is something that we never, I don't, at the time, we never appreciated that one institution could license this way and another institution. It's not true in Europe. It's true in the United States, I think, right? Yeah, and now I think I'm taking notes. <laughs> um, but it's true nowadays. We try to get what's called an inter-institutional agreement in place 
so that one of us decides yes. we're going to go forward and control and collaborate with the other party. Yeah. Yes. But your problem is another company bought your license and then they killed you. Yes. I mean, a, a, an academic collaborator who was a co-inventor licensed to the competition. And so, um, yes. <coughs> All your licenses were through Dartmouth? Of course. Everything, of course, Dartmouth is owns all of the intellectual property, and it's up to them to whom to license. Yeah, they were a big help to me when we went yes. to the a few years ago. Yep. Yes. Okay. All right, Randy, thank you so all much. Right. Thanks, sir. How are you?